You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And uh, today we have a great guest on the program, Tony Juniper. Uh, welcome to the show, Tony. Good evening. Nice to see you, Matt. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, Tony, your resume is quite long, so I may not be able to cover it all in a one-hour show, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll kind of hit some of the highlights. Currently, the, you're the chairman of Natural England, which is uh, a public body, and you were appointed by the Secretary for Environment, uh, Michael Gove, back in 2019. It's a pretty impressive uh, body that uh, has 2,100 employees, uh, $194 million or $194 million pound budget, and uh, quite a, a substantial portfolio of things that you do over there. Uh, in addition to that, you are a fellow with uh, Cambridge Institute for Sustainability, and you were former executive director of Friends of the Earth for 18 years, author of a number of books, most recently, The Science of Our Changing Planet, in which uh, Prince Charles wrote a very nice foreword for your newest book. So uh, that's, uh, that's quite a bit of work, and kudos to you for, for doing all that uh, just diving into what what kind of brought you to the environmental movement what was your your path so um th this goes back to um very early childhood really and, and a fascination with animals and plants and fish and birds and fossils and trees and rivers um really that was something that was um, of great interest to me as even as a small child and that interest then took me into being uh, a naturalist and understanding the natural world and studying it, which then in turn uh, was um, the basis for, for a degree course uh, back in the early 1980s at Bristol University reading zoology and psychology, which was really uh, about animal behavior. And then uh, having done that, really um, a, a question for myself as to what kind of path I, I should pursue. And it was really a choice between being an academic scientist or pursuing uh, a more um, practical career in conservation. Uh, and it was the latter that I did. And uh, some of the things, Matt, you were kind enough to read out uh, have been some of the highlights since. And uh, it's remarkable to see how the conversation has changed, actually. I, I first became involved uh, with conservation uh, as my work back in the middle 1980s. And uh, 37 years later, the issues are completely transformed, of course, in terms of the understanding of their importance and the ambition that we now have to do something about them. Uh, and uh, that, that is, uh, I guess, most recently seen uh, in the huge global interest in, in climate change that accompanied the COP26 summit that was hosted here uh, in the British Isles in Scotland, in Glasgow, uh, only last month. So what are your takeaways from the COP26 uh, conference and, and what are... What are the top things that you think were accomplished and the top things that weren't accomplished and and kind of what's the path forward from from this point? Well, those cops, there's a lot of things going on at once. And I've been to quite a few of these over the years, going right the way back to the Rio de Janeiro Earth Summit 
1992 when I worked with Friends of the Earth. And ever since then, you know, the conversation has continued at the global level. And, you know, whenever those meetings occur, um, there are a number of things simultaneously taking place at once. And so one thing which a lot of campaigners and uh, advocates focus on is the formal negotiations and the intergovernmental agreement that comes from countries working together to try and come up with an accord uh, based upon consensus that everyone can live with, uh, which sets out the, the policies and plans for the future. That's one really important thing. Another thing that's going on, of course, is, is you know a massive trade fair. Uh, lots of different organisations come to the COP, uh, the um, electric vehicle industry, com companies uh, in the um, renewable energy industry, people in green finance, uh, NGOs from WWF to Greenpeace and Oxfam. And there's a vast networking uh, process taking place with lots of different deals being done. And then various announcements are made at the COP by those companies, by those NGOs, by individuals and individual governments and groups of governments. Uh, and at COP26, we had announcements on methane reduction, forest conservation, the phase out of coal. And then, of course, there's a massive public awareness raising going on because the media really focus on the conversation at the time of these global gatherings. And, of course, protesters and campaigners turn up and ask for more to be done. And all of that occurred in Glasgow this time. And each time we have one of these meetings, the ambition goes up and up and up. And uh, this time, uh, you know, the commitment to get to 1.5 degrees was repeated uh, having been a first uh, established in Paris in 2015, and more steps were taken towards meeting that goal. But we're not there yet. More does need to be done. And countries will come back together at COP27 in Egypt uh, next year. Uh, and hopefully, you know, further steps will be taken to take us in that direction. But aside from those formal statements of intent coming from individual countries and collectively from countries, you know, there's a, a very much more subtle and intangible shift going on uh, as a result of these kinds of meetings. And, you know, the finance sector making commitments now to move money and capital out of high carbon industries and into low carbon ones. Um, commitments from food companies to begin the process of eliminating deforestation from their supply chains. And companies coming together to undertake um, commitments to um, decarbonize the, the, the uh, food uh, industry. These are all hugely important things that don't necessarily register in a legal document, but which actually are gradually moving the dial. And at the same time, you know, the massive media coverage that followed that meeting or came with that meeting um, really is um, helping to cement public opinion behind the kind of change that we need. So a lot of stuff going on. And, and like all of these cops, it wasn't the end. It never is. There will always, always be more to do and countries will come back next year to do more of it. Right. Well, there's a lot of ground to cover there. And, and certainly you've books have been uh, written about this subject or these subjects. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, which is fascinating to me with I had a bit of an economics background before getting into law is the finance, finance sector and how the changes that are being made on that front to uh, maybe not finance things that are highly uh, carbon intensive industries. Uh, how do you see those changes playing out in, in the short term and long term future? Well, it's essential to, to the whole thing. And I, I've been working uh, 
on these questions long enough to, to, to see a gradual shift, first of all, um, amongst governments um, going back to the early 90s and the progressive understanding of the need to take action. Uh, we've then seen the public opinion shifting as a result of the science and the media focus on that. Uh, we've seen some of the big corporates moving, car manufacturers, for example, shifting from petrol and diesel towards electric vehicles. But now um, a big piece uh, of the jigsaw, which is going to help us accelerate the action, is moving as well, which is the, the finance side. And sometimes I think about the economy as, as kind of literally a vehicle, an economic vehicle, where you've got governments in the driving seat. Uh, you've got the private sector companies underneath the bonnet. They're the engine. Uh, and then you've got the fuel going into the tank, which is really the green finance. And if you imagine the economy like that, with these different components of government setting the direction, the private sector creating value and the finance coming in to help the private sector go in a good direction. This is the thing that we've not seen enough of yet, that reorientation of the financial uh, flows, but it's now beginning to happen. And at COP26, uh, we saw some very strong signals on that. And, you know, effectively at a very simple level, this is about moving investment out of what previously were highly productive uh, in a financial sense, industries, including oil and gas and coal, and moving that finance, simply put, into the alternatives, solar, wind, uh, electrification of transport, for example, and it's beginning to occur. Uh, and there's plenty of other industries that can be part of the solution too. Well, I think I may have read it in your book, which was essentially, we've got a situation where our economy uh, has to be reoriented because the feeding the economy the way that it was going it just is kind of leads us to the disaster that we're headed in, towards that direction. Uh, so we have to reorient our economic incentives towards a, a more environmentally friendly outcomes, and then everything will shift in that direction. So like uh, classic economics, treated natural resources as infinite and something you really didn't need to value. And that's really the reason why we're in the conundrum we're in is because we didn't treat uh, our natural environment as really uh, something that we could damage, which in the 1750s when Adam Smith or wrote or 1770s when he wrote yes. the, uh, the books, the first books on economics, uh, he did not value natural resources because it didn't seem like you needed to value it at the time uh, because it seemed limitless. But now we're to the point where that uh, we have reached the limits of uh, our natural resources. Um, we will be right back in uh, just one minute with Tony Juniper, who's uh, chairman of Natural England and uh, talking about the environment here on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, host of Unite and Heal America. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and uh, we've got Tony Juniper, who is an environmentalist from England, and uh, glad to have you on the show, Tony. Just wanted to kind of turn to your book a little bit, The Science of Changing Our Planet, which uh, uh, Prince Charles had written the foreword, uh, and I, I kind of wanted to maybe you can give us a little bit about the backstory of your collaboration with uh, Prince Charles. I know that you've worked with him as an advisor uh, on 
Charities International Sustainability Unit, uh, and probably other things. Uh, what, uh, what brought uh, you into uh, his orbit or vice versa? Well, one of the things um, that, that really inspired me uh, as an environmentalist uh, decades ago was the fact of, of having uh, the uh, figure of the Prince of Wales very much speaking uh, on the same issues. And, you know, not so long ago, it's quite easy to forget, you know, that mainstream, though the environmental questions are today, it wasn't always like that. And it was quite rare to find mainstream figures in, in positions uh, like his uh, speaking about such subjects. And so he was a great inspiration for me from the early part of my career to hear some of the things that he would say about tropical forests, about biodiversity, uh, about sustainable farming, all these questions which are now uh, so familiar. And uh, after I departed from working at Friends of the Earth, um, I joined his international uh, sustainability unit to work on, on rainforests, um, a, a rainforest project. It was called the Prince's Rainforest Project. And the idea there was actually to pick up on some of the points we were discussing a moment ago about economics and to change the economic equation uh, in relation to tropical forests so that they would be seen as worth more alive than dead. Uh, was the way His Royal Highness put it, and to conduct an exercise whereby awareness and conversation could be raised uh, to flip the economic equation, because the rainforests were being cut down uh, to supply natural resources, to create space to grow crops, including oil palm and soya beans. Um, but what was not visible uh, in what looked like good economic activities that were making money uh, was the cost that would be caused uh, through the release of greenhouse gases as carbon was emitted into the atmosphere and also the disruption to global water supply because the rainforests are uh, aptly named. They're pumping vast quantities of moisture into the air, which is traveling long distances and which is coming to the ground in the form of rain, which is watering crops. And so all of these things we uh, set out to get onto the agenda more firmly. And actually at COP26, you know, that discussion continues, not least as a result, I would say, of some of the work that was being done on that subject 15 years ago, more or less, when His Royal Highness launched that particular initiative. But the sustainability unit also worked on food security, also worked on the marine environment, uh, and uh, sought to bring people together to, to solve what are exceedingly complicated problems. But at the heart of it, really, is that flipping perspective uh, to see nature and the natural world as actually valuable, rather than simply something um, that we extract resources from, valuable in its intact state, I mean. And you know, that observation uh, that we should look after nature for reasons of economic security and social well-being uh, is something which has now been firmly underpinned uh, by expert studies undertaken by the British government, including the Stern Review on Climate Change. And also, more recently this year, the publication of the Das Gupta Review on the Economics of Biodiversity. So we are moving into a different space where we're beginning to see the need to align economic 
and ecological priorities together rather than to see these things as as choices you know do we protect the environment or do we grow the economy well we have to do both otherwise we we won't um succeed with either actually in the end because without an economy that's meeting people's needs we won't be able to achieve environmental goals and if we don't achieve environmental goals then the underpinning of the economy uh, will be eroded uh, and i think that set of um points and that logic is becoming understood at least in some parts of the world but of course we have a very long way to go yeah i, I certainly recall a reading of prince charles's work on the environment uh, decades ago and uh uh, unfortunately, in the popular press, it doesn't get quite as much ink as some of the other stories uh, coming out of the royal family. But uh, I appreciate his long and dedicated service to getting that message out there because, uh, quite frankly, uh, the press didn't cover this story as well as it should have for decades. And, and now when it's at crisis point, they're, they're finally kind of waking up a little bit more. Uh, though maybe that's just the nature of humanity. It's like we have to be faced with impending disaster before we really uh, stir from our sleep. Um, I think uh, you set out a number of the, the challenges in your book very, very effectively and very in a very straightforward way. Hey, we have growing economies, growing populations, growing cities, increased need for food and energy, growth and travel with airlines, increased water consumption, People are living longer, uh, increased amount of refugees. Um, this is a, an extraordinary set of challenges that we face and which are driving kind of the environmental problems that we're facing because as we have growing economies with more people, it's hard to use less and less energy. Uh, given all of that, kind of what do you see as maybe the top five things that we should be focusing on to uh, to solve the climate crisis. Okay, well, a top five. Well, um, so well, the most obvious and and the thing that probably is most spoken about uh, on the climate change challenge uh, is the need to shift from fossil fossil energy uh, to renewable energy and for electricity for heating and for transport. And, you know, there are technologies already uh, in deployment and which are growing very quickly, which will do that. So that's that. That's number one. And, um, you know, a, a subset of number one would be the efficient use of that energy. So if we're going to be generating a lot of power from solar and wind, let's use it with the most efficient light bulbs, for example. So that's thing number one. Thing number two would be uh, to stop deforestation and actually to reverse it uh, by increasing the area of natural forest cover uh, on the earth and to do that through the process of where we can achieve it through natural regeneration uh, would bring big biodiversity biodiversity benefits as well. So there um, is, is a component there which would, uh, by stopping deforestation, would, would halt emissions from that source and by reforestation would begin to reverse it by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The third thing would be to shift to regenerative agriculture 
And so by regenerative agriculture, I mean farming, which is producing healthy food, but in ways which are not depleting the natural environment, especially soil health. And soil uh, is another massive carbon store. And at the moment, through depleting organic matter in soils, by the way in which we farm, we're putting a lot of that carbon back into the atmosphere through depleting the organic matter. So by restoring the organic matter in soils through regenerative processes, relying less on manufactured fertilizers and more on natural composts and manures and rotational farming, these kinds of things, we could shift into a process of, of rendering uh, agriculture much less impactful on the climate too. Fourth thing um, would be to move to a circular economy. So at the moment, we take natural resources from the environment, we turn them into consumer goods, and most of it uh, we waste pretty quickly, either into landfill, into incinerators, or into the ocean in the form of plastics, famously. Lately, people have been talking about that. And we need to shift to an economic system that sees that waste at the moment, we call it waste, to see it as resources, valuable resources that need to be recaptured and turned into new products. So there's uh, four headings right there. And the fifth one, actually, to underpin all of the above, take us back again to economics. Let's have economic measurement that is measuring the environmental impact as well as the GDP uh, that is um, being generated. Because at the moment, we have one measure which is really dominating our economic thinking, which is the GDP measure, the increase in, in wealth and throughput in the economy. Let's also measure the carbon intensity of that and indeed the impact uh, on biodiversity to give us more information about the extent to which we're succeeding with clean, green growth. I think if you put that package of five things together, that would be a good start. Well, I've, I've often said that our uh, GDP is an antiquated and uh, not helpful measure for all things, uh, for an economy and for for a uh, for a nation or for the world, because it's driving us in a direction that is really unsustainable. With greater and greater growth over the next hundred years is, is going to lead us to disaster. So if we change our measurements, we'll change our direction. And um, I guess to that extent, uh, I'd like to talk to you further after our break about what measures are being taken by governments and maybe NGOs or, or the like that are addressing these concerns. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and uh, we'll be back in just one minute. As you may know, your host, Matt Mattern of Unite and Heal America, is also the founder of Mattern Law Group. Their team of experienced employment, consumer, and environmental attorneys are dedicated to leveling the playing field by giving everyone access to the highest quality legal representation. Contact 844-MLG-FOR-YOU. That's 844-MLG-FOR-YOU or 844-654-4968. 844-654-4968. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. Again, my guest today is noted environmentalist Tony Juniper. And uh, we're back with you talking about uh, the issues that Tony thinks are most important. And uh, he gave us a list of a top five. And the last one, uh, Tony, that you were talking about were economic measures of kind of changing the incentives and the the way we look at um, our economy from 
as opposed to uh, have, focusing on GDP, looking at the environmental impact and the carbon intensity that our economies are generating as the new metric. And how do you see that uh, playing out? Where are we at right now in that respect? And where should we be? And how are we going to get there? Well, I, I think the first thing is to realize that we, we do have positive um, alternatives to what we've been doing. And I think part of the hesitation that countries and societies have had uh, in embracing a different kind of approach is really based upon the, the, the idea that this is about sacrifice, about ending um, uh, the creation of wealth, about losing jobs, about damaging competitiveness, uh, when indeed it, it need not be any of those things. And uh, one of my favorite examples, actually, of a country that took a different path some years ago is the Central American Republic of Costa Rica. And the story of what happened there in the 1980s uh, is very interesting because the country at the time had one of the highest deforestation rates in the world. And people weren't talking very much about climate change in those days, but they were very aware of soil damage and loss of topsoil, uh, the flooding that would come in the wake of that, uh, the loss of wildlife, of course, and uh, the extent to which local climate would change in, in terms of rainfall patterns and so on. And so there was, uh, you know, an understanding of the environmental downsides, but apparently every good reason from an economic perspective to continue with deforestation in order to produce more cattle to feed global demand for beef. Um, until uh, the environment minister and the finance minister in the country uh, began to think about ways in which they might create economic advantage through conserving and restoring the forest. So the opposite idea to the one which had become embedded, uh, but which they felt would be worth trying for economic, not only for environmental reasons. And if you look at the reasoning then, they decided that actually conserving the forest would be very good from the point of view of sustaining the country's water supply. The cities and every other part of the country, of course, needed fresh water. The forests were providing that. And they also understood that the rain being generated by the rainforest was topping up the rivers, which were filling the dam uh, reservoirs, the hydroelectric dam reservoirs, which were generating the country's power. And also the water, of course, the rainwater was um, responsible for sustaining the crops, the pineapples and coffee and other crops and bananas that were so important for Costa Rica's um, export economy. <clears throat> and so they decided to stop deforestation and to reverse it. And to cut a long story short, fast forward 30 years uh, into uh, this century, and the country had doubled its forest cover. And also, using the old-fashioned economic measure, they had doubled their per capita GDP. So they'd restored the environment and they'd actually created economic advantage at the same time. And of course, um, on top of the water supply and the electricity and the agriculture, um, since then, they've built a massive and very important ecotourism economy with people traveling from Europe and North America to Costa Rica to look at the wonderful wildlife that lives in the forests. And so this wasn't uh, an example of where environmental improvement led to economic decline. It was the opposite. 
And I think that's a great inspiration for the whole world, looking at how we transition away from fossil fuels and into renewables and the extent to which we can be creating jobs, to be harnessing technology to drive export markets, uh, to be driving innovation and to be creating new industries, all of which could be bolstered through stronger targets being adopted by governments to cut carbon emissions. Now, obviously, the transition is, is more complicated than that because uh, you don't necessarily create the jobs where you're losing them. Uh, you know, there are various uh, losers as well as winners as we go into that new economy. Uh, but it is a transition that the science tells us that we need to navigate and with a matter of some urgency, given how close we are now to triggering global warming um, of above 1.5 degrees, which during the course of the Paris summit in 2015 was set out really as the danger threshold that we need to avoid. So my, my basic conclusion would be that we need to think about different economic strategies and, and, and ones that, of course, are not only going to be solving environmental problems, but also generating social benefit in, in terms of jobs and, and everything else. Well, it uh, calls to mind, uh, you know, when uh, President, then President Trump was in office, he was uh, railing against uh, any cuts in production of oil and uh, gas drilling because from his perspective, we had trillions of dollars of assets in the ground. And of course, why wouldn't you pull all of those out? Because though that's money to be made. And it's, and it's a very short-term uh, and myopic view of the world of let's get the money out and uh, you know, screw the consequences of, of, this, uh, of this action. And uh, to me, that was the you know, the antithesis of being environmentalist is, you know, let's, you know, rape the resources as quickly as we can to maximize profit, which is kind of what classic economics tells us. I mean, from a yeah. textbook st standpoint, that that's classic economic theory, get as much money as you can as quickly as you can. But that that particular methodology is leading us off a cliff. So we do have to alter that that worldview or else we're going to all kill ourselves. So, um, you know, I, I, I uh, definitely see why we need to change. It is a long-term challenge and uh, I don't, I don't know exactly uh, how we're going to change it from, from a government by government. Uh, you know, you, you cite the example of Costa Rica and that was a, a brilliant uh, move that they made in a small country, I think uh, changing that metric in China, the US and uh, the EU is maybe a little bit more challenging, though I see the EU furthest along in the spectrum of, of making those changes. But why don't we turn our attention to China and um, talk about what changes they're making. And, you know, I noticed in your book that China is planning to increase their emissions for the next 10 years until 2030. I don't see how we can possibly uh, really continue on that trend line and and save ourselves from um, breaching the 1.5 degree increase in temperature. Yeah, well, every country uh, is different, has its own political circumstances, uh, its own history, its own economic position. Uh, its own social situation in terms of there being more or less poor people. And so every country needs to navigate its own path 
forward and find its own way. And, you know, for China, for India, for Brazil, for Indonesia, you know, it's going to have to be changes taking place in those countries primarily, which is going to be driving the agenda forward. And, you know, encouragement from the outside can help and leadership by other countries that have shown what's possible, uh, which is why, you know, I, I think it's so important that countries like the UK, which have stepped up uh, on this subject and which have set targets and which have put in place laws which are now being followed by policies to be able to meet some of these goals you know that is um, leading by example uh, rather than uh, suggesting that people should change without actually having made the changes ourselves and and you know I think that's a, a kind of very human dynamic you know show me rather than tell me and uh, I think that holds on climate change at the global level, especially from those countries which have had a long history of industrial development. And, you know, in England, of course, was the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and uh, I hope will be one of the birthplaces, at least, of the ecological revolution, which now needs to follow uh, rather quickly. Well, certainly uh, that that is true. Lead by example is is certainly a good principle for all of us to to consider. I guess on um, that front, I know that uh, the European Union has instituted a policy that uh, they are going to essentially charge or have a tariff for high intensity carbon products that are imported into the U, uh, into the European Union. Uh, where do you uh, stand on that? I'd like to get your answer when we return from the break. And uh, if the uh, UK is doing something similar, we've talk talked about similar things in the US. I don't think it's gotten very far down the path, but it was something uh, that I know was in um, a number of the documents in the 2020 campaigns around uh, the US presidency. So it is something that has been considered. And to me, it seems like it would encourage all economies to, to move towards less carbon intensive processes uh, going forward. So you're listening to KBC 790. Uh, this is Matt Madden, your host of Unite and Heal America. And we've got Tony Juniper, noted environmentalist, and we will be back in just one minute. been listening to Unite and Heal America, KABC 790. This is Matt Mattern, and uh, we've got Tony Juniper, noted environmentalist on the program. And Tony, right before the break, we were talking about uh, some policies to encourage uh, lower resource uh, intensive industries and uh, lower carbon usage around the, uh, around the planet. Uh, where do you stand on that? And do you see that being uh, an important policy change that the EU, UK, and the US should be taking? Well, one of the things that, that I've come to understand uh, over the uh, years is the extent to which environmental challenges, especially these really, really big ones like climate change, they, they can't be solved in isolation. Uh, they do need literally an economy-wide approach for them to be resolved. And 
you know, that involves the complexities of, of international trade relations and the extent to which what we're trying to do in decarbonizing the economy in one country um, is not being undermined by somebody doing uh, something which is not that in another country and then importing those goods into the country which is taking action. And, you know, different countries have, have highlighted this actually from the point of view of, of industries um, being undercut by other countries having lower standards and the extent to which, you know, it may look like we're going green in one country, but actually we're importing uh, pollution from another, whether that's through manufacture of, of consumer goods or deforestation uh, to supply agricultural produce. So it does raise the question of how you then start building some of these environmental um, priorities in, into trade policy. And it's really difficult because nobody wants to be restricting uh, the flow of, of goods and services and the wealth creation uh, in, in ways that they see as, as unfair and uh, or, or indeed unworkable because it is so complicated to even work out the numbers. One of the things that has been um, put across in, in the climate discussions over the years is, is the potential of importance and uh, viability of doing something about this through putting a price on carbon so that wherever emissions are going into the atmosphere, a price is being paid that reflects the environmental damage that's being done. But we haven't actually got to that point yet. Um, but, you know, this this remains a, a, a challenge of, of enormous complexity, but one that governments are going to need to deal with. Yeah, I, I certainly have. I had a guest on the show recently talking about the carbon tax, and that was essentially their main thrust in in the U.S. Congress to try to get something passed along that uh, along those lines. And and they made some degree of progress, but you know they're not quite there. And and that carbon adjustment tax that uh, or a policy that the EU is um, is instituting seems to be a step in that direction, which if it's taken, it's almost as if other countries don't even need to adopt that um, measure themselves because they will for be forced to kind of deal with it in their trade dealings with the EU, which is, yeah. I think, the beauty of the mechanism is that it, it kind of uh, enforces a certain degree of discipline. Hey, if you want to trade with the EU, which is one of the yes. largest trading blocks, you have to Kind of decarbonize your economy at least to the extent yep. that you're dealing with uh, the eu yeah yes that's right and uh you know the, the another way of doing it alongside that kind of mechanism is to be having common standards across the world for energy efficiency uh and fuel efficiency of vehicles and fridges and tv sets and things like that and um actually in the past you know that has been a condition of, of imports in in some parts of the world uh, to have certain standards in in terms of the the pollution caused by vehicles and, and the energy used by, by different goods and services. Um, you know, and uh, that, of course, obviously help, helps to accelerate technological innovation, too. Once you start to set these kinds of standards and put rules around them, then we find, you know, a great deal of innovation follows. And, you know, there has been a, over the decades uh, in some quarters some sense that, you know, if we're going to put these regulatory standards into particular industries it's going to you know slow them down it's going to cause them to be um less effective uh in, in innovating but actually it's the complete opposite and we find very rapid innovation very often being driven by regulation so again it's a kind of framing of the, of the economic story which is quite important as well as the the mechanisms that are there 
Right. I mean, uh, as somebody who certainly supports a free market economy, we do have to recognize that all of our uh, systems are pretty well regulated. I mean, we don't have stock trading without regulation. Uh, and the regulations regarding clean air, in particular in Southern California, where I live, are pretty stringent. And those created standards for the automobile industry, which then became followed in the rest of the United States and then around the world, when the automakers were all saying, oh, you can't do this, it's impossible. And, and of course, it became possible and, and it did come into practice. Uh, one of the things I'd like to ask you uh, as we uh, come to the close of the interview is talk a little bit about hydrogen versus electric fuel, electric power and uh, vehicles. And I'm uh, to disclose, full disclosure, I'm a hydrogen car owner. So I, I'm no. a little bit uh, more of a... Right. A proponent of that. Uh, but I also recognize, hey, the electric vehicles uh, do have a place in this uh, mm-hmm. equation. But I, I question whether or not we should be putting more emphasis to uh, build out the hydrogen yeah. uh, economy well, versus well, uh, the electric one. Yeah, well, um, this, this, yeah, this, this then raises all sorts of questions about which technology pathways uh, we might like to pursue. Uh, is, is your hydrogen car, Matt, is it a fuel cell vehicle? It's got a fuel yes. cell in it? Yes, yeah. it's a fuel cell yeah. by Toyota. Yeah, so, um, so that technology generates electricity through um, combining uh, hydrogen with oxygen from the atmosphere across a catalyst, uh, which which is the core of the technology, and uh, you know the, it, it produces um, water vapor as the exhaust fuel uh, fumes. Well, not it's not a fume; it's water water vapor. It's a it's a harmless substance coming out of the exhaust, and so to that extent, it's very green. But the question is, where do you get the hydrogen from, uh, and the extent to which you know we need electricity to um, purify the hydrogen or to separate it from water, and uh, if you're getting it from solar or wind power, then that's a good thing. It's clean. Uh, but then there is an energy cost because the amount of energy you need to separate the hydrogen from water, uh, you finish up with about one tenth of the electrical power you started with. So you get a kind of a step down each time you, you, you make that transition from one fuel to another, so from electricity to, to, to hydrogen that's being refined. So there are some issues there and also questions um, around the minerals needed to make the catalysts in the fuel cells. And that also then applies uh, to the electric vehicles, which are battery powered, um, and the extent to which you know you have to source a lot of cobalt and lithium and copper uh, to manufacture these vehicles. That has a big footprint in terms of mining and refining of those materials to create uh, the electrical powertrain. And so there are questions there. And again, also questions linked with the charging of the batteries and where you're getting the electricity from, again, with a step down in terms of how much electricity you've got to use to drive the vehicle compared to what you're generating from your wind turbine or solar panel. And so these are um, some of the questions that are there. But I think both technologies, you know, they, they have they have enormous potential. I think, you know, hydrogen probably uh, we will find is better suited to larger vehicles. You know, cars can work, but 
big vehicles like trains and trucks and ships um, lend themselves more to hydrogen, not least because of the fuel tanks needing to be big and heavy. Uh, and um, also those kinds of vehicles, you know, you, you can imagine them being filled up with hydrogen um, in like depots rather than having to have a, a gas station as we have with petrol and diesel, you know, not on every corner, but, you know, quite a few of them. So um, there are some kind of practical questions there about the, the fuel distribution and how you get it into vehicles. Um, but as I say, you know, I think it's got a lot of potential, particularly for, for, for ships and trains and what have you. Um, and maybe, you know, the, 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 the more um, suitable uh, technology for, for road vehicles, for cars that most people drive will be uh, the electric battery Um and, you know, as, as, as you'll be aware, Matt, enormous amount of energy and effort going into battery technology with, with a lot of research going on in different parts of the world to see if we can lift up the extent to which, you know, one charge can take you for, for, for quite a lot further than presently is the case for many vehicles. So this is the transition we're in, however. And, um, you know, the, these are the kinds of discussions that 20 years ago were quite abstract. Now they're very real, real policies being put in place, real incentives being created, real factories being built, real money coming in from investors to, to put behind uh, these new um, technology streams. And um, I think we're at the beginning of a revolution. And uh, certainly in this country, you know, we've set a target now to end the sale of new diesel and petrol vehicles by 2030. That's just nine years away. It is a pretty remarkable movement and, and great progress that I think has been made. Uh, obviously, tremendous amount of progress needs to be made. So we have to keep our attention and efforts uh, moving in that direction. And it's been uh, great having you on the show, Tony. Uh, really appreciate your contribution to the environmental movement over a number of decades. and. Uh, and I'd encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of The Science of Our Changing Planet, Tony's new book, which uh, is an excellent read and I think encapsulates a lot of the different moving parts related to the environmental problems that we face very succinctly and, uh, and effectively for a reader of any level on this uh, subject. So a great contribution to the, uh, to the dialogue. So Thank you. And we'd you know, love to have you back on the show at some point in time to talk further about this. And uh, so uh, you've been listening to Unite and Heal America. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and welcome you all to come back and listen in next week as we talk to uh, other guests regarding the environment and how we can improve it going forward in this 21st century. Mm-hmm.